radical left has taken over the Democratic Party. Hello and welcome to Think Progressively, covering politics and all the other chaos life has to offer. This is episode 32, recorded on Friday, April 9th from Milwaukee. I'm Joe. And I'm Jason. And on today's episode, we'll talk to Aaron Rabinowitz about philosophy's impact on politics. But first, actually there's no headlines, so to the interview! That was really a productive segment, wasn't it? It's hard to get any word in with this clown. Our special guest today is a philosopher, author, and podcast host. He is a PhD student at Rutgers University. He's a co-editor of the book Hamilton and Philosophy, Revolutionary Thinking, and he's the host of the Embrace and Void podcast and co-host of the Philosophers in Space podcast, two absolutely fantastic podcasts you should check out. I'm personally a huge fan myself. And to make it all better, he has a dog named Voltaire. So please welcome to the show, Aaron Rabinowitz. How you doing, man? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. I'm excited to chat. Welcome. Now, again, I'm pretty biased. I'm already a pretty big fan of your stuff. I absolutely love Embrace the Void. If you seriously have any like philosophy curiosities at all, please check out his podcast. It's phenomenal. And that's kind of where I get all my philosophy kicks right now. So I'm super excited to have you on our show. Also a good Twitter follow. I appreciate that. What, Jason? Also a good Twitter follow. He is a very good Twitter follower. Mm -hmm. I I will say Embrace the Void is better as a show because it's the show where I talk the least. (laughs) So I want to kind of just get started with your story. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself for anyone who doesn't know about you already? How you got into philosophy and then what you're interested in doing right now? Sure. I So I grew up in like suburban Virginia, had a fairly privileged middle to upper middle class lifestyle, got to you know, be in the um, accelerated kinds of programs that now in my education program I've discovered are evil. Um, and... <laughs> Then I, you know, went off to undergrad and and like during that time, I was mostly recreationally doing a lot of theater. I was really into plays. You know, my social group was the theater group. I was in every ways the kind of classic theater nerd. And I went off to college to, in theory, do more theater and sort of quickly realized that I didn't want a life in theater in that kind of way. I, I did end up continuing to work in theater for quite a while as a lighting technician when needing to make money, but sort of right around that same time i got in with some folks in the philosophy department and took like a philosophy class and it was a very weird experience because like i think i had been doing philosophy much earlier in my life but hadn't been thinking of it that way you know like i'd read zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance when i was like 14 or 15 and that had really messed my, messed with my head for a while um but i didn't think of like philosophy as something that living people still did until i got to undergrad and discovered that it was still like an actual activity. Um, and I just, at the end of the day, it's probably just a hedonistic kind of thing where <laughs> I just have a kind, you know, I particularly enjoy challenging mental puzzles and ethics turned out to be the most interesting, challenging mental puzzle for me. And so I got obsessed with ethics. And I also, you know, do care a great deal about trying to improve the quality of life for other, you know, sentient beings. And so I got into ethics, got really into meta ethics, got into AI ethics. And what I realized over the course of it was that I was much more interested in the education side rather than the research side. Um, And so I'm now pursuing a PhD in education with a focus on moral education. And I'm curious about better and worse methods of moral education and how to 
help people get access to moral knowledge because it's often not taught in public schools for a variety of reasons. And so people are kind of left to their own cultural devices until they get to college. Um, and that's, I think, not a really good way to learn ethics. So you're talking like actually teaching philosophy classes in high school, right? You're not, as in like moral education philosophy, or are you just talking about general, like fixing the pedagogy of other subjects? Both. Okay. Um, but certainly, certainly focused in this, in this case on teaching philosophy earlier. Um, there is a lot of interesting material. So like I was very lucky, like I said, and I got to be in the IB program, which meant that I got to take what were philosophy classes in high school. I didn't really think of them in, in that kind of way at the time, but they were like theory of knowledge courses that like got me started thinking in these kinds of directions, which I think, you know, is it's unfortunate that's not part of the common curriculum. And I also think there's a lot of good data. There's like people who do philosophy for kids is a sort of um, growing field where there is good evidence that you can, you can downshift philosophical material pretty effectively. And that it turns out that like young individuals are actually fairly competent at doing philosophical, like theorizing and work pretty early on and that it like benefits them to do so. I think a lot of the reasons that we don't do it are because they actually are quite good at it. And what we don't want are our children growing up to be free, critically thinking philosophers, because philosophers are a giant pain. And like nobody <laughs> wants all of their children to turn into philosophers. Everybody hates moral philosophers. At least that's the lesson right. I got from The Good Place. Um, As well you should. Yeah. Well, and it's like my favorite show ever in the world, too. But and so, yeah, when I was talking or when I was thinking about actually doing um, philosophy for myself before every single philosophy professor I had in college talked me out of it. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm, I was actually mm -hmm. looking at the exact same thing that you were looking at, where I wanted to try to teach philosophy and philosophical subjects and content at a, we'll say at a high school or middle school, high school level. And there just mm -hmm. wasn't anything there. You know, usually when you saw anyone try to teach philosophy, it was like maybe the psych teacher or like a social mm -hmm. um, studies teacher would try to take over just like as a random elective or something like that, but it was never really great or well run or anything like that. So yeah, I'm like super like into this. This is fantastic sounding. I'm very excited to hear that more schools will be interested in this kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because you're also up against like the the basic financial problem of trying to fit more things into the curriculum. So you've got the budget on one side and nervous parents on the other side. And right. so like a lot of what I'm trying to do is, you know, find spaces where individuals can develop this material that isn't in public schools necessarily because of the pushback there. Um, so I'm involved in like secular and atheist organizational, like, you know, group group movement kind of stuff. Um, and I've been writing on the spaces that folks like the Secular Student Alliance uh, can create for young individuals to come together and talk about secular ethics, help them cope with false perceptions in society about immoral atheists, which is a common stereotype that still exists today, um, and help them feel like they can be confident in their own moral identity. I think a lot of what we can do for young individuals as they're uh, developing is like give them this chance to develop philosophical identities as well. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. And I was just going to actually ask about the SSA, so I'm glad you're involved with them. So the yeah, I've gotten to go do ahead. like a ton of like on hand stuff with them. I've had a couple of the guys on the show over various points and um, I heavily cite they, they recently did a big study alongside American atheists. That was a like massive qualitative and quantitative yes. survey. I think I know what you're talking about. Um, atheist. Yeah. Awesome. 
So the big reason why I brought you on here, and for anyone else who doesn't know, like, why the heck is a philosopher on a politics show? Well, one, like I said before, I absolutely love discussing philosophical topics, things like free will and God and religion. So this is kind of like a nice little personal prize for me to talk to an actual philosopher about this type of topic. But the big reason why is because for a lot of people out there, they kind of treat politics as this weird separate entity that's not connected to anything else in our world, and especially philosophy. And when I talk to people Mm -hmm. about philosophy and philosophical topics, they just say, what's the point of this? Why do you care about these random topics that no one else cares about? And, you know, why aren't these just the typical, you know, let's pass the blunt, get super high and talk about, you know, well, if the world's not real, man, type of things. Mm -hmm. But there's a real influence and impact that philosophy has on real world topics. So, for example, Mm -hmm. how can we talk about systemic racism if you don't think free will exists at all? How can you talk about you will say general ideas of policymaking if you can't talk about moral and ethical philosophies or just the idea of like, you know, who would win a bar fight, Ayn Rand or Karl Marx, you know, just things like that. So the main reason why I brought you on here, Aaron, is just to ask you, where do you think philosophy fits into politics and how do you think it could actually help us push politics in a better direction? Yeah, this is a good question. And you certainly will see detractors of philosophy talking about it being sort of useless or navel gazy. It's a very weird, I feel like it's a critique that maybe made more sense before the internet. But I feel like in the age of the internet, it's hard not to acknowledge how much we're all saturated with philosophical questions all the time. So like looking at politics, for example, I personally think that politics is just ethics at scale. And so like the separation between politics and philosophy, you know, makes no sense to me. And um, my friend Toby Buckle, who runs the political philosophy podcast, like I think would probably have plenty more to say on like the, the, you know, how do you talk about politics without talking about Hobbes, for example? Right. And like how, you know, Hobbes is so obviously a philosopher. So like that boundary never makes even less sense to me than like, you know, the boundaries between philosophy and natural science or something like that. You could argue like at least there. There is some sort of difference in techniques that are being used to some extent. But like, I, I think the reality we, is sort of the history of ideas is people were doing a bunch of undifferentiated thinking. And out of that sort of primordial philosophical thinking spawns a bunch of these subfields like politics and philosophy and, 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 and uh, science and all these things. And like, so there is this ultimate, you know, psychology too, right? These are, these things are sort of fundamentally connected in this kind of way now like the question of why is it valuable i mean i think we can talk about like lots of different sources of value here both sort of intrinsic if you believe in such things and instrumental value so we could say you know some people do believe that truth is valuable separate from any good that it produces i think there is a little bit to that but i tend to be on the side of like i care very heavily about truths that produce increased well-being for individuals so you know learning about ethics makes if if learning about ethics helps people to recognize that like slavery is wrong or something like that then that seems to me to be a really fundamental good that philosophy can produce and any arguments that can be put forward for the sake of social justice you know you know so like when you look at um ai ethics right now is something that i care a lot about and I think a lot of people have in their mind AI ethics. They used to probably have in their mind the Terminator 2, but that's probably shifted now. I think probably a lot more people, if you ask them about AI ethics, they're going to talk about protecting data or something, or they're going to talk about racial biases or gender biases that get built into AI systems. And if you don't have people coming along and saying, 
look, there's a problem here and it's potentially conceptual in nature. That stuff gets missed, I think. And I think with one thing where I'm seeing a lot, we'll say in the conservative movement right now is this big idea Mm -hmm. of libertarianism and individualism, at least in America, right? So we have a very radical idea of what's mine is mine and then screw off if you don't have it. And kind of like what you say flies in the face of the universalist idea of for the betterment of all. So how often do you actually see philosophies of like Ayn Rand and things like that influence the ideologies of the right and conservatism? Or is it more so about, you know, you hear a lot today Mm. about how they just are reactionaries. Yeah. So I don't think I see Ayn Rand get like literally name checks much anymore. Um, I do. So like this is interesting because I'm going to be chatting with somebody tomorrow for ETV um, who corrected me because I pointed to sort of problematic forms of libertarianism. And I have since tried to I've had a few libertarians on my show and like I, I try to make space for the idea that there are like better and worse kinds of libertarian views and that you know, we can be very critical of the kind of randest libertarian views without assuming that that is all of libertarianism. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've also had folks point out that like what might what might appear to somebody to be libertarianism might be something like anarcho-capitalism or something like a similar, similarly anti-authoritarian in some ways view, but actually like a highly authoritarian view in other kinds of ways. And that like those kinds of views may be heavily influencing things like people in the intellectual dark web or something like that. So, you know, it's it's a fun joke, I think, to to trash on libertarians. And certainly <laughs> some of them have earned it. But I, I do think it is also valuable to say there are libertarians who I think do care about sort of common good kinds of concerns. They just get there in a different kind of way. Um, and then there are a bunch of other paleoconservative kinds of views that sort of masquerade as libertarianism when they're really just like regressive conservatism. Do you think there's much value at all in talking about politics without diving into these deeper philosophical issues? So like if we're going to talk about the ideas of individualism, do you think we should go all the way back to these philosophical concepts of morals and ethics? Or is there any purpose to just talk about the surface level political stuff? Um, it's an interesting question. I think, you know, I think, you know, like, Every time you have a conversation with somebody about politics, you don't need to be like, well, let's return to first principles, Socratic style or something. <laughs> um, I, I do think there is value in, you know, if I'm trying to engage with somebody who disagrees with me, trying to figure out what are sort of the root justifications for their view is, is you know, kind of trivially true. But I think it, it's worth reiterating that, like, finding where they're coming from can be valuable in that kind of way. But I don't think, you know, I, I don't. I don't find a lot of value in every conversation I have with someone being like, and then I whip out some rolls or something like that, right? <laughs> like I, you know, you want to talk to people, I think, at, in, in the kind of tone and language that they are particularly interested in talking about. And that, you know, like lots of people are interested in, I think, talking about politics, um, but some of them can find it, I think, off-putting if you just start name-checking and quoting people. And I think, unfortunately, philosophers have a bad habit of, name checking other philosophers in a way that they think is giving credit but sounds to other people like being pretentious yeah kind of like a type of elitism or something like that yeah and i don't think it's meant to be a kind of elitism but i feel like philosophers are unaware of that it comes off that way a lot of the time so like you know i i'm all for quote-unquote downshifting of language for the sake of having conversations and like mo- most importantly 
doing that in a way that is not condescending or like recognizes that it is no one's responsibility to have learned all of these ridiculous philosophers and that like you can have a very good life without spending a bunch of time memorizing different philosophical positions and that you can have you know useful and insightful things to say about politics based on your own personal lived experiences and whatnot without you know, needing to cite chapter and verse from a philosophical text to justify it. And maybe that's a good segue into like the idea of having these types of conversations and how to have good productive conversations with these people. So you've had like multiple, we'll say like conservative, more moderate conservatives, maybe you'll call them mm-hmm. um, on your show recently, Embrace the Void, doing literally what you're just talking about now, just the idea of having these good discussions about things you probably will disagree on, but Figuring out a good, solid way to talk to these people without sounding pretentious or insulting or demeaning, but actually trying to figure out how they come to the beliefs that they have. So what kind of tips and techniques have you learned from talking to these more moderate conservatives? And what have you learned from these moderate conservatives? Yeah, so I feel like I want to I always red flags go off with a question like this because I feel like there's a risk of either saying very, very trivial, obvious things or like. Being And like, I also want to first caveat and say, I don't know that anything I'm doing on Embrace the Void actually helps. I don't have any like evidence or data that sure. I'm changing hearts and minds in any robot. Like, you know, I get I get some messages from people, but like basic knowledge about selection bias tells me that I could be turning off way more people that I'm turning on and never know about it. So like, I, I can't say that what I'm doing is actually effective. It feels right to me. And that's the best that I can do. And, and so. Yeah, the sort of stuff that works for me is often a lot of that Socratic dialogue kind of thing where, you know, I really genuinely do want to try to understand where they're coming from and understand sort of as best I can the strongest version of their view. I don't necessarily have to like argue against it if they are unwilling to present the strongest version. Like if somebody comes on my show and wants to present a really weak version of the view, and I'm like, do you mean the stronger version? And they're like, no, I really genuinely mean this weaker version. Then like you should critique that and like address that. So sure. I, I think there is something, you know, there's limits about the kind of, you know, steel botting that people should try to do. Um, but I also, you know, my personal and, and again, I feel very anxious about making these suggestions. So for me, you know, I take an approach that's very like non-escalatory right it's i'm i tend to stay fairly calm i tend to you know try to avoid emotional language or appeals to some extent i guess i think the reality is that i'm able to do that because i come from a very privileged position where i can take a fairly analytic approach to these issues and not feel sort of some of the anxiety that could come out of harm being caused i maybe i don't know um no i I think you're uh, completely right because when we're talking about the idea of we'll say arguing about the value of a marginalized group right we'll say mm -hmm. if you have like a the trans community who's being forced to argue their own existence right to all these Mm -hmm. types of people it's very hard for them to stay we'll say emotionally i don't know objective for a lot of the things because it's insulting i I wouldn't expect them to stay Mm -hmm you know, unemotional this entire time. So I completely understand. I think it is a good point of privilege, but I think it's also a good thing for someone to do that at the same time. And so I remember you talking to a previous, and I wish I remembered his name and I apologize, but you were talking to someone on another podcast about civility bias and cheap talk. The idea of having Mm -hmm. these conversations or these people saying, we want to have these good dialogues 
and conversations with people and you're just not allowing us to have them because you're way too emotional to have these people. So where do you think that is right now in the current state of our discourse and how the heck do we solve this problem? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely see that pushed a lot. I also see other kinds of versions of this, like you're just obsessed with this person. So of course they're not responding to you or something. There are lots of ways for people to just dismiss criticism of any sort. And I don't, I don't see us like developing a super robust mechanism. I think, you know, if we're very lucky, like internet norms will develop where individuals who repeatedly behave that way get sort of marked as such and their credibility and influence goes down as a result. Um, But I think realistically, when you look at how many sort of microcosms there are on the internet, it's very easy to have a sort of fairly stable core base that will reinforce you pretty much no matter what. Um, And so it makes it very difficult to enact any sort of serious pressure on people to behave better. Um, So yeah, I'm not, I'm not super optimistic about that, I guess. You know, I think on personal level, you can still form communities. And so I'm, I'm more optimistic about the ability to, rather than the ability to like chastise um, bad actors, I think there is the ability to form community where people model better behavior and that positive reinforcement sort of builds and hopefully at some point reaches some kind of critical mass. Um, but I think it, it's it's going to continue to be rough for a while, I think, as we muddle through this kind of post-truth world that we're living in. I don't think we have even a, a very good handle on most of the mechanisms that are causing the problem. And people are sort of reaching very quickly for solutions, some of which I think could just exacerbate the problem. So when you're talking about chastising bad actors, are we talking about chastising we'll say the supposed other side we're talking about chastising those within our own group so because when i was (laughs) perfect i love it (laughs) because i i'm thinking back to the idea of i'll say the supposed fall of like the skeptic movement right where you had a Mm -hmm. lot of atheists and skeptics who were you know that jason and i were also definitely a part of and you loved it so much and then you know everything just went down and because everyone just got into the big anti-woke we'll say movement Started with anti-feminism. Well, and then, you're right. Yeah. And then Which was, you know, Gamergate. These were yeah. all proto-anti-woke. Exactly. You know, Post-PC, pre-anti-woke, transitional um, garbage. The elevator gate. Oh, my God. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. The elevator gate. And this is why even talking about, like, when you ask, or you're talking about, you know, people on the outs or people on the in, like, when I started criticizing James Lindsay, you know, five years ago now, I guess, horrifyingly enough, whatever it was, um, you know, he was an atheist and I was an atheist and I was depressed that like this atheist was saying things that seemed very wrong to me. Now, when I criticize and people are like, oh, you're criticizing someone on the opposite side, he's still a like horrible representation of new atheism. And so I still feel like I'm criticizing my own, even though I, he is also very much not of my group in any way. Um, so like, what, what do we mean about these kinds of like criticizing your own is a tricky concept, um, because of all of these overlapping identities. And doesn't he still proclaim to be one of the classical liberals anyway? And I was going to bring up the idea of classical liberalism as well, where it makes it a lot hard to actually try to criticize these. Now, okay, not actually, because we can criticize these people all day long because they're disingenuous as hell, but the idea of them choosing these identities and labels such as classical liberalism that makes us feel like they're still a part of our in-group, though, really makes it difficult for a lot of people to still criticize them. So, you know, I remember when mm-hmm. 
the big debate happened over um oh god lawrence krauss i couldn't remember his name where a lot of people in the mm-hmm. atheist skeptic movement did not want to criticize him because he was one of us you know type of thing and obviously he was rightly ousted from all the potential events and sponsors that he had and we basically just forgot about him because we should have how funny is it now that he was a big epstein uh defender oh my god mm-hmm. i mean you know with someone like james even when I started criticizing him, even a year ago, it was harder to peg him as not a liberal. But like in the past, whatever, five or six months, he's come out in favor of these anti-divisive ideas bills that are like so far afield of liberalism that even like Kathy Young is posting criticisms of him at this point and like saying that he's gone into crank territory, which he has. Like when you are posting anti-globalist, anti-vax conspiracy theories, and teaming up with Christian nationalists in order right. to promote like nationalism. I, like, I, I honestly believe that before his spiral is over, he will, he will be describing himself as a cultural Christian. And he will be saying that cultural Christianity is the only way to protect yourself against wokeness. I barely well guarantee that. Well, we've seen it going. with what Dave Rubin. I was going to say, that's the Dave yeah. Rubin approach. And even Jordan It is Peterson. the Dave Rubin approach. That's exactly correct. He's going to do a Rubin. Ugh. Everyone thought Jordan Peterson was an atheist for a long time. But the thing like with Jordan Peterson, ridiculous. right? I was like, but the thing with Jordan Peterson though is that he never even proclaimed to be an atheist. Where you have people like Ruben and Lindsay saying they are actually atheists and a part of the atheist community, and now they're switching over because of the grift. That's what's the difference. Yeah, and you can read like Peter Bogosian's article about the Great Realignment, where he claims that like the new culture war is not between atheists and Christians; it's between the woke and the anti-woke, and it's. It's all of this like ground laying for mm-hmm. their business arrangements with Michael O'Fallon mm-hmm. and sovereign nations where they're trying to justify uh, working with these pretty disturbed, pretty disturbing ghouls, I think. And, and like, I, you know, I'll be honest, even if you set aside that stuff, I don't think that they're being successful at all in what their stated goals are. If their goals are reduce the influence of radical wokeness in the world. They have failed miserably. All they've done <laughs> is poured gasoline on that fire, it seems to me. And like I identify as woke um, because I think it's important what people who identify as woke are doing. The social justice work that folks like James Lindsay criticize is, I think, incredibly important stuff. I am also cognizant of good just, you know, like good criticisms of woke behavior and woke ideology. And I think those criticisms are valuable. And I just think people like Lindsay make it vastly harder to criticize these things effectively because they like James Lindsay can't tell the difference between a good criticism and just anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. Um, and he will repeat both of them with equal vigor. And that's not a good look for, for the anti-woke movement. I don't think. So then why do you think now? Okay. I'm a big psychology guy. I'm in grad school for psychology. So I can try to answer it from a psychological background, but from a philosophical background, why do you think a lot of these self-proclaimed skeptics are basically giving up skepticism and turning to these weird stretches of anti-woke movements and conspiracy theories and just really odd types of behavior that we probably didn't see from these same people, we'll say even like five, six years ago? Yeah, so I think there's there's like a lot of things going on here, and some of it is psychological, so I think... I will I will put it generally so that I don't get sued. I think that narcissism is rampant in the intellectual dark web. And I think uh, many of these individuals have gotten a really strong hit of dopamine off of getting famous or semi-famous or whatever. And like they're chasing that dragon real hard. 
Um, so I think that's a lot of what's going on here. I think also, you know, there is an identity here that I have seen. And it's weird because this is a community of people who will tell you that they are not a community of people, even though they are very, very clearly a community of people. And their shared identity is around not being a member of a group and having heterodox thinking in various kinds of ways. And when you get into that kind of place, you are basically in the mindset that conspiracy theorists get into. And once you're there, it's very hard not to slide because conspiracy theories, I wrote, a, I wrote an article about this. Once you start to think, hey, maybe there's a concerted effort by a group of nefarious individuals to undermine my understanding of the world. And that's why there's all this propaganda, what I see as propaganda being put out. Um, once you're there, it opens up all the other conspiracy doors because if they're able to do this, then they're able to do all the other things. And that's how you end up, you know, with James Lindsay, I think, believing that like the vaccines and COVID are part of a conspiracy theory as well. It is also crazy to see the skeptic movement on that side be against vaccination well, after our, so many right. years of being like the the number one proponents for vaccination mm -hmm. and criticizing anti-vaxxers when it came to the covid vaccine you see people like michael Shermer and, and the conservative skeptic movement still pushing back again well we don't know for sure <laughs> it's just crazy well, we yeah even michael Shermer. we even saw some of our former friends in our former secular group do the exact same thing yeah and we came you can uh Talk to your podcast co-host, Thomas Smith, about uh, <laughs> oh we came from a secular, an atheist group that basically turned into a right-wing <laughs> uh, political group. Oh, are you guys part of Mythicist uh, yeah. Milwaukee? Yeah. Yep. We, we were, we're both we're the, we're the good guys that left. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're we, the good guys. Yeah. I left right before that conference, and Joe left right after that yeah. conference. I, yeah, I, they really turned into uh, the anti-woke um, oh, it's awful. Uh, dumpster yeah. fire. Well, wait, wait, okay, but that's why I find it so interesting, though, because when we talked to them, and I don't want to talk about them specifically, but that's just what our personal experience is. Mm -hmm. It was like a switch turn somewhere where me and a mm -hmm. lot of my friends who also came from different cult backgrounds. So like I was also a part of a cult back in my day. And so like some mm -hmm. of my other friends were a part of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and things like that. And they said, this is exactly how cults used you know, used to talk when back when they mm -hmm. were in cults. What is going on with our friends here? They feel like they entered a different type of cult. And I think when you talk about the idea of motivated reasoning, back with your um, article that you were talking about writing, I think there's a definite, mm -hmm. um, definite bit of truth to that. Because I think, I can't remember who did the study, but someone did a recent study, I think it was out of New York, about how misinformation really flows throughout Facebook. And what they found was, Sites and sources that post misinformation on the hardcore right compared to every other source from like the far left to the moderate left to center to even moderate right found way mm -hmm. more engagement for posting misinformation than for, you know, true things. And so there is a definite desire and demand for this type of information, whether it's true or not. And that's what mm -hmm. scares the crap out of me. Yeah. And it's really tricky because. I really do want to give credence to the people who are having bad experiences in their lives. I do think there is like a lot of neoliberal wokeism that is like very cringe. That is the sort of, um, you know, D'Angelo struggle session kind of stuff that is really off putting to people. And I get why it's off putting mm -hmm. and I don't want it to be the kind of face of social justice. And so like, I want to be sympathetic to those criticisms and I want to help people to understand Look, you can have those criticisms. It's totally fine. 
you don't need to then slide into this anti-Semitic, anti-globalist stuff that like some of these people are promoting. And I do think you're totally so like it's very tricky. Um, James Lindsay has accused the woke of being a cult. Um, I do think there are parts of the woke world that have cultish tendencies to them. I think there are. I think I would argue on the other hand that like the anti-woke movement is being driven by cult leaders in a much more robust kind of way that like if you look at the list that even James Lindsay puts forward of what is the list of cult um, properties, right? Like all of his things, I feel like it's 100% projection and that like his his behavior makes the list much better than anyone that he's ever critical of, including D'Angelo. I would totally agree you know, especially mm-hmm. when we have people like, uh, do I even want to consider Ruben as maybe not because Ruben's such a he's out of it now. <laughs> just no in one, it for the money. Yeah, no one cares. Clearly, about well, because no I one likes him even counts anyway. as a cult leader. I feel like there's a basic level of having a view that you were trying to foist on other people. I feel like right. he has no, he has nothing like nothing but clickbait. He's just like clickbait and shoes. Exactly. But when you think of people like Jordan Pearson, Sam Harris, and a bunch of. And, Maybe Richard Dawkins. I don't know who who cares about Richard Dawkins anymore. I have no idea. Um, but mm. you have these people who are just have these. Jordan such, Peterson is a good. I sure, think he's the closest. Where he has yeah. such big followings, and people will not criticize him if they are fans of mm-hmm. his. And mm-hmm. I think that's really tough. You know, at least with Sam Harris, I guess his fans do criticism more often than some of the others, and he kind of came out as at least as moderate compared to their IDW people. But mm-hmm. I just the idea of this call behavior and. Filling it with this identity of I am an anti-woke, anti-PC person. This is coming from someone who used to be like that and who became very close to having that happen to them for probably as a lifelong identity. And I'm glad I didn't have that happen to me. So I can see where it can be very easy to fall into that type of rabbit hole, but it's Mm -hmm. so much hard to get them out of it once they fall in. Yeah, I do feel like I've I've talked to a disturbing number of people who were like, I was headed into that red pill direction where like, and often from these kind of communities that we're talking about, where like they were, they were in that place of just wanting to be reasonable and not fall into sort of problematic forms of groupthink or something like that. And then, you know, they were in a street epistemology group and somebody posted something about this kind of stuff. And because of, you know, Peter's connection to them, that it gets portrayed in this certain kind of way, potentially, and then things kind of spiral. So I, I do think, you know, there's a lot of talk about like on ramps to radicalization online. Um, and I think it is important to see how, you know, the kind of crushing religion with facts and logic kind of ide- identity that new atheism championed and like championed, I think, with the intention of trying to deal with that kind of marginalization of atheist individuals that I was talking about earlier to try mm-hmm. to give them this kind of positive atheist identity leads to a lot of this kind of narcissistic uh, rationalism. Well, and I think a lot of that's also just driven by overall civility bias, where you see so many people saying, I'm willing to have these discussions about whatever topic you want to talk about. I'll destroy you with all these facts I have, but you're just, you know, you're going to be mm-hmm. a snowflake about it, supposedly, right? And this is the idea right. of where they'll always say, you know, it's all about dialogue. It's all about free speech. And that's kind of usually the umbrella term they'll put it under. Marketplace I mean, of ideas. Yeah, well, right. Or even just the idea of saying we're persecuted because it's of cancel culture, whatever it is. So, but they mm-hmm. focus really hard on free speech. And for viewers who may not remember, Aaron, you wrote an article for The Skeptic called The Curse of Monster Island, which was a 
multi-year-long experiment hmm. in unmoderated free speech that we actually referenced in a free speech episode, probably, I think, like, what, last month? Something like that. But can you tell us a little bit about the idea of free speech and this experiment and why unmoderated free speech isn't as good as what a lot of these people say it is? Yeah, so this was a a group that sort of formed around some people that I was arguing with on Facebook during the 2016 election. And it was just like so toxic on our normal Facebook walls that people were like, can you take this anywhere else? And so we created a space that was, you know, like set off from the mainland in that way as a safe space to have these ridiculous arguments. And once we had set that up, it kind of became this idea of, can we make this a space in which we don't need to enforce rules and people will still manage to have interesting debates while also coming from vastly different political perspectives? And we really did have like a wide range of, of you know, far left Marxists to far right self-identifying white nationalists kind of individuals. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't go well. And it doesn't go well in the way that like a lot of people who read it were like, well, obviously it wouldn't go well, but it's not obvious, I think, to the people who defend these kind of radical free will, free, free speech views, excuse me, um, where, you know, I think they really imagine that there could be a Twitter where nobody gets kicked off of Twitter or something like that. And that that would be a good thing rather than just like a hellhole that nobody would ever want to be around, even more than like Twitter already is. Right. I do think you can have productive conversations on Twitter, but it is a pretty messy, not super ethical environment a lot of the time. But imagine how much worse it would be if like Donald Trump and, and Alex Jones were still on it. It's just far worse. And what you find are like if you don't have moderation, you just whether or not you have moderation, you'll always have people who are going to like test that moderation and try to undercut it and then complain about crackdowns when like you end up like they push your hand and you finally have to enforce some sort of rule. But I think like the better thing to do is just community run social uh, moderation. Um, I have, you know, a philosophers in space Facebook group now that is wonderful and like never requires any kind of moderating because like I, I choose the people who go in like any, anybody who can answer the questions will go into it. And generally speaking, we haven't had almost anybody who, came in and caused any issues but the rare times when it has happened i've just basically gotten rid of them and it wasn't a big deal and and so yeah i do think rather than going back to the wild west of the internet that some people seem to idealize i think we want to be moving towards uh moderation that is like ideally community based rather than algorithmically based right now we're in the age of uh really crappy ai moderation where like um, there's a there's a, a a big problem now amongst my secular friends where or not my secular my skeptical friends where they're trying to post debunking information on social media and so they'll post something about how QAnon is wrong and bad and it'll get censored because it's about QAnon. Oh, okay. And yeah. so like you can't. It's very difficult in some situations to like be pushing back on the content while the algorithms are preventing you because they think that you're promoting the content. Yeah, I think the the algorithmic moderation that we have now too is not based on any kind of ideal or mm -hmm. any good for anyone it's just based on capitalism it's based on what do the advertisers want and what don't they want and then they don't care if they you know throw the baby out with the bathwater 
as long as it's safe to sell ads. That's really what mm-hmm. the goal is. Well, and I think also, Aaron, I think in your article, you talked about having this perceived, not you, but your other group members have this like perceived bias, even though you guys had like a very moderate or well moderated board that controlled all these mm-hmm. types of rules and regulations. And they still felt they were being persecuted for being, I think, conservatives or right wingers, just like that, even though they had right wingers being mm-hmm. the ones that were canceling them per se. So I'm assuming then, you know, because of what you just said, you're this horrible commie cancel culture person who just hates everyone, supposedly, according sure. to the right wing. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Um, but, no, I mean, like, I love mixing it up with people. I started an argument group because I wanted to argue. And what I, you know, and and like, I'll be honest, part of the problem was we had real trouble getting right wingers who actually wanted to argue. It wasn't hard to get right wingers who wanted to like spam, you know, racist memes and stuff. There was plenty of that. But like getting people who wanted to not meme spam and actually have a conversation was quite difficult. Um, and And maybe that was just the pools that we were pulling from. But I also think it's indicative of what has happened with the GOP in my lifetime where they have so undercut. Um, you know, I've, I've been so critical of elite, uh, you know, intellectual, academic, whatever, that like they've really like uh, uh, intellectually bankrupted their own communities, um, which makes it much difficult, you know, difficult for them to advocate for what they need. And like, I really want these communities to be getting what they need. I don't, you know, the, the GOP to me is another cult at this point in a lot of ways. And, and the more it gets taken over by QAnon, the more obvious that becomes. But whenever you're dealing with these cults, I do think it's really important to remember the people trapped in them are just really unlucky. Exactly. Like, they just have had a really bad run of epistemic luck and they don't they, they need help. Right. This is a, it's like a medical situation. It's not a criminal kind of you know, it's like it's like trying to throw drug addicts in jail or something. It's not the right approach. I understand. And I'm, I am very critical of the people who lead them, um, even though those people, I think, ultimately are being buffeted about by by forces beyond their control. But yeah, I think a lot of stuff that has come out of new skepticism, new, new skepticism, right, is a return away from the snide, you know, oh, you're so dumb because you believe this and back towards a like compassionate, um, let's understand why you believe this and see if we can get a little bit of the worst parts of this out of the worldview. Well, and I was going to say the exact same thing where people in cults, and I've experienced it myself, they're not dumb. In fact, when you look at cult behavior, mm-hmm. cults will intentionally look for people who are smart and intellectual because they are better at rationalizing their beliefs than, we'll say, supposedly less intelligent people are. So mm-hmm. they're not dumb. They're just, like you said, they just you know went bankrupt on the bad epistemology wheel. So I think, because I just realized how far we are into this interview, I think the big thing when it comes to anything that we're talking about right now is the idea for a heavy need of skepticism. And you, know, you just talked about how a lot of skeptics are falling away from general skepticism or they're not doing skepticism supposedly correctly. So as a philosopher mm-hmm. or as an expert in your area, you know, Mr. Elite, how would you <laughs> describe what good skepticism should be in today's age? And what tips would you give for people who want to be more skeptical in a, we'll say, supposed proper way? I hate saying the correct way of skepticism, but I don't know sure. how else to word it. And I, I know what you mean, but yeah, I do think we need to say like, look, there's there's cheap talk skepticism, which is the kind of, conspiracy mongering about election fraud or you know vaccines or um you know whether covid was really a bioweapon that escaped a lab or something like i think that is cheap talk because i think those individuals don't have any interest in like following up and admitting if they got anything wrong 
there are a lot more like psychics who just will shotgun a bunch of planes and then anything that counts as a hit they'll focus on and all the other stuff just kind of falls away in their minds and the minds of um their followers so like how to how to be what seems to me to be better skeptics at this point is you know try to turn down the temperature on your takes it, there's such a compulsion to have a bunch of hot takes and to like you know the more you spend time online the more you have to expand out to like things you know less about so that you can have hotter takes about those things too and like i think there's something to be said for try to have more more reasonable basic like like avoid swinging at every pitch for starters i think people have a habit of just like they'll swing so quickly at something and then it's like basic stuff like if there's a story that breaks wait a day or two before you respond to it because like the odds are good the initial reporting is crap and like 48 hours later the narrative is going to be substantially more robust and then you can say something without jumping the gun like i think that shouldn't be hard but I feel like people really struggle with that. And, you know, in the meantime, when you're learning about a thing, like when you're looking at sources, you know, looking for multiple different sources that come from different perspectives all around the issue. This is like, I guess it always feels so trivial to me when I start like breaking it down. But like these are, I think, check the date. This is another one that's super funny. Like oh, yeah. the frequency with which people will reshare something. I do it too. Like even saying this, I've I've, I've gotten... You know, at least once a year, I'll screw this up where it's like you'll reshare something because it's so clickbaity. And then somebody will point out that it's like five or six years old. Uh, and that's just it's just bad. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we just have to undo the like motivating systems that these social medias have created where they're they're thirsty for content. And so they impel us to generate that content at such a ridiculous speed that, of course, we end up saying a bunch of stupid things. And a good symptom of this is that when you go to share something on Facebook now, it asks you if you'd like to read it first. Yeah. That's yeah. And it's interesting <laughs> to watch how that stuff comes into play. Yeah. Go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying that's, that's a pretty bad indictment on our society when it has, we have to have a system but it in works, place. Though. Literally adding a second step like that severely decreases the amount of times people are actually going to post something. So that actually does work just by adding an extra step and making them think about it. So that's a yeah, good and thing. I, I, we want to be real careful because I've, I've spent the past semester actually in a post-truth class for my education degree, like reading the studies about what works and what doesn't in, in the post-truth like kind of world. And part of what I want to say is be very, I want to be very careful about saying that anything has been confirmed to work because I think I often find that when I read these studies, they, they make a lot of weird assumptions and inferences and it's not clear to me that they can generalize. But what happens is they get picked up by popular media who says, oh, you know, this is concrete proof that the blowback effect is real or it's concrete proof that the blowback effect is false. Right. Mm -hmm. And the reality is we, we are just like barely beginning to like get a handle on how to use any kind of study systems, I think, to effectively assess what is going on in these individuals minds. Oh, totally. I mean, exactly. That's where my field is right now where I'm mm -hmm. trying to look at research in my field and they're still relying on things back in the, you'll say eighties to early two thousands because there's just not much research done. I mean, a lot of the research mm -hmm. done in psychology was done in the sixties and seventies. So good Lord, you know, I asked when people, or I asked my professors about, Hey, so what do we have right now about our attractiveness as far as social media goes, or as far as mm -hmm. persuasion going on Facebook and Twitter? She's like, we got nothing right now. Like fantastic. Right. I'm glad. <laughs> so. It's cool to be well, in an emerging like, field, but there's like, oh, you kidding yeah. me right now? 
Yeah, no, I was talking to Matthew Remsky about this, who's a cult guy as well. And we were just talking about how, like, you know, the the information on the way that cults work is just like out of date, right? The kind of brick and mortar cults that on which like so much research was based around these kinds of behaviors, just like the mo- like the whole playbook is very different in the post, you know, in the, in the internet age. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see how analysis of these behaviors, if it can even keep up um, with these rapidly evolving online ecosystems. Right, exactly. I mean, when you have one of my favorite authors is Dr. Stephen Hasen, where, you know, lifelong cult expert, but he had to kind of revamp a lot of his theories because they're very old compared to what we say what we have now. So I totally mm-hmm. get that. And the fact that we just don't know what really motivates these people to push them towards these hardcore extremist ideas is pretty unnerving, at least for my own perspective. So, but mm-hmm. I really enjoyed, it may have been um, Remsky who said this in the episode with Embrace the Void, but I loved what someone said on your podcast about putting weight behind your words. And that's something that I've been trying really hard to put on myself, where I think someone said on your podcast, whenever he's going to challenge someone, he asks them literally to bet them money to see if it's true or false. And I think it was like 50 bucks mm-hmm. or something like that. I'll bet you 50 bucks to do this. And I've been trying to kind of put that into my own life where I say, okay, would I put money on this being true? And if I'm not, then mm-hmm. I'm probably not going to post it. So I really like the idea that really putting weight behind your words is something meaningful. And as much as I even hate to say it, it's also a cult phenomenon too, because we actually listened to this, Jason, in the Nexium cult when we analyzed them, where they actually were all about mm. putting weight behind your words, which made them more fervent in their cult behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think... um it may have been on Guru Pod that they were talking about this in particular, though I also think that um, uh, I was talking about it on Twitter with those guys. And I think we, Jay Shapiro and I may have discussed it a little bit as well. Uh, it is something that I've tried in various. And it was actually something that I tried back on Monster Island sometimes was, uh, you know, doing non-financial bets where the loser would have to post a picture of themselves with a sign that says I was wrong. Um, which I think is a more valuable piece of a commodity than $10 in a lot of situations. So, you know, I think there is something to that, though I, I don't necessarily think that it scales effectively on oh, not at social all. media. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really am like sort of honor culturally about this sometimes where I'm like, you know, my reputation is the only thing I have on Twitter, right? Like, and so if I shoot off at the hip a bunch and embarrass myself by having like unnecessarily hot takes about things I don't understand, then like that just hurts my ability to, you know, help people in any kind of way. It just undercuts the the brand as it were. And so, you know, it's, it's ridiculous in some ways to talk about it as brand management, but I think we all have these kinds of reputational brands online at this point and people can, can value those and cultivate a better reputation. It seems which I wish was truest, but I'd be skeptical of that because we have entire mm. side of people who are saying, I want the other way. I want people to shoot at the hip. And I like that a lot better than the more hesitant and serious way of thinking and posting about things, which just infuriates me. But I mean, this is a literal, you know, say epistemological crisis we have right now where people don't know what sources to go to. And then at least a large majority of those sources are getting paid to just post whatever they can because that's what gets them the most attention. Yeah. And I think there's always going to be like some of, there's always going to be hucksters offering things and there's always going to be an audience for it. But I also think that like, 
we are, you know, we as a species go through these binge and burnout phases. And I think we're in a big binge phase when it comes to the internet. But I also am seeing, I think, some signs of like hot take burnout where people are just tired of the bunch of people got very tired of Trump, you know, and like, I think people maybe hopefully maybe I'm just being optimistic here, but I think there could be some shift as communities start to develop around the idea of no, we want, you know, normal temperature takes by experts who have done the work and are sort of being thoughtful about this rather than reactionary. I think that content is, it's, you know, it's harder to gin up a lot of quick support for it. I think you can develop, you can develop stable communities around it, which is harder to do with the kind of boom and bust culture war catastrophizing that you see in other places. Do you think you believe that enough to have that be like the good ending for us to end this conversation on? <laughs> How much I do you mean, want to bet? <laughs> yeah, if you want to put fifty dollars down that this <laughs> Joe Rogan it's not in is keeping still with my the... brand to have an upbeat ending, but you know, <laughs> um, I I don't know if anything will get done in time to address large scale climate change or any of these major problems that we are facing. You know, humans are resilient, like their brains, our minds do adapt to new environments. And I think the Internet is a new environment that we're still adapting to. Um, So I think there's some reason to think that, like, what feels to us to have been the only way the Internet could be is not necessarily the only way the Internet can actually be. Um, And here's hoping that other generations will do better with it than we have. But yeah, I. I don't know. I, every other day I switch back and forth between optimism and pessimism. I don't, I don't know where I even fall anymore. So we're putting all our hopes into Gen Z. Long, <laughs> yes. live, long live TikTok. <laughs> but there's some, really good, there's some really good philosophical work being done on TikTok. I'm trying so Yeah, we also hard. watched a video where people in Texas were burning snow. So, right? <laughs> um. I'm not saying everything is good. I'm saying there's some good. I'm trying so hard to do a... Um, political psychology thing on tiktok and good god no one cares and it's probably because no. you know and here's the i'm taking the idea that you know it's because they all have the problem it's not because i suck it's because they all mm. suck you know that's the real case right are you dancing i think that's the no, issue i should be i would assume love. you're being canceled for your radical views oh totally just, I, you're trying to speak truth to power and exactly no one, no one and i'm that. so sick of big tiktok and doing this to me but <laughs> but TikTok. seriously Aaron, thank you so much for coming on. This was such a fantastic conversation. I'm really upset that we ran out of time because I could talk to you for so much longer about this kind of stuff. If people could find you anywhere, where would they go? Sure. So you can find Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space on all of the usual podcatching apps. Um, you can uh, find me on Twitter at ETVPod. Um, Zero G Philosophy is the account for Philosophers in Space, but I don't tend to post there as much, but feel free to message there and I'll try to respond. But mostly I spend a lot of time on uh, Embrace the Void, uh, arguing about all the same stuff that we just talked about. But seriously, Aaron, thank you so much. Have a great rest of the night. And I hope, you know, under better circumstances, we can have you on again. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you in the next episode. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at ThinkProPod. You can email us at ThinkProPod at gmail.com. And remember, when in doubt, think progressively. Let me try again.
told you, man, I screw up all the time. He's an awesome person to listen to, and he's so goddamn smart as well. So please check That's him out. False. No, <laughs> you are not allowed to end on that as a fight. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I veto. <laughs> How how can I torture this guy? Just any way possible. He tortures uh, all his horrible. guests. I'm gonna find my words. No, it's fine. 